On May the 23rd, 1934, Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow drove down a rural road, unknowingly driving towards their imminent death. Moments later, the infamous couple would have their crime spree ended in a shootout with the police. This is the story of Bonnie and Clyde, America's most famous lovers. Oh, I like this one, and I know this one. <laughs> yeah, you know this one. This, I think this is one everyone knows. Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, It's Bonnie and Clyde. Like couple goals, isn't it? Uh, well... In like mm, a fantasised version where nobody yeah, gets hurt. Yeah, they are definitely majorly fantasised, and... When we when we're looking into it, you'll see why they were so fantasized at the time because of what was like going on in America and stuff during the nineteen thirties. Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting case to be fair. Like I I felt I felt like I knew the story, but now like that I've researched it, I really know the story. Like I just knew like ooh, two lovers on the run. But now you really know the story, and you're gonna tell us the story. Yeah, and yeah. now I'm like ooh, Bonnie and Clyde were not good people oh girl <laughs> yeah before we get on to it let's get the housekeeping done and um, please follow us on our social medias facebook twitter instagram and the tiktok we're at curiously morbid pod if you want to hear more of us and who doesn't want to hear more of us you can follow us on our patreon you can get extra content from just five pounds a month for whatever your money is we'll take it there you get extra content morbid musings and um, wallpapers for your phones extra merch and like the merch just gets sent to you there's a hoodie if you subscribe at the 25 pound tier the less the vip like get on that now no like stop what you're doing and go and do it like now and also leave us a five star review please if you are an iphone user and tell me tell me go follow us on spotify all those sort of things they all help get the show out there share us all that sort of stuff you know what to do. Now let's crack this case file open. Bonnie Elizabeth Parker was born in 1910 in Rowena, Texas. She was the second of three children and she was born to Charles Robert Parker, who was a bricklayer who died when Bonnie was only four years old. Her widowed mother, Emma Parker, moved the family back to her parents' home in Cement City in an industrial suburb in West Dallas, where she worked as a seamstress. As an adult, Bonnie wrote poems such as The Story of Suicide Sal and The Trails End, the latter more commonly known as The Story of Bonnie and Clyde. In her year, in her second year in high school, Parker met a boy called Roy Thornton. The couple dropped out of high school and were married on September the 25th, 1926, six days before her 16th birthday. So very young. What? Yeah, get very young. Dead quick. Yeah, they do. I'm very young back then. Their marriage was marred by his frequent absences and brushes with the law, and it proved to be very short-lived. They were never divorced, but their paths never crossed again after January 1929. She was still wearing his wedding ring when she died. Thornton was in prison when he heard of her death and commented, I'm glad they went out like they did. It's much better than being caught. He'd been sentenced to five years for robbery in 1933 after attempting several... He was several... in prison? Yeah, she liked... She basically had a thing for bad boys. And Thornton was then also killed when he was trying to escape prison about three, three years after Bonnie and Clyde's eventual death. And I mean, obviously there's big spoilers there but i'm pretty sure everyone knows the main sort of gist of the story around bonnie and clyde after the end of her marriage parker moved back home with her mother and worked as a waitress in dallas one of the regular customers was a postal worker called ted hinton 
1932, he joined the Dallas Sheriff's Department and eventually served as a member of the posse that would eventually kill Bonnie and Clyde, so one of her regulars at the cafe. Parker briefly kept a diary entry in 1929 when she was 18 years old in which she wrote of her loneliness, her impatience with her life in Dallas and her love of taking pictures and all of those things are going to come, you know, to importance very soon. Now, this takes us on to Clyde, so a little bit of a background on him. So, he was called Clyde Chestnut Barrow and he was Chestnut? Chestnut, that's his middle name. Oh, that's cute. (laughs) Yeah, Clyde Chestnut Barrow and he was born in... like Chester. Yeah, cute, isn't it? (laughs) So. He was born in 1909 into a poor farming family in Ellis County, Texas, southeast of Dallas. He was the fifth of seven children of Henry Basil Barrow and Cummy Talitha Walker. The family moved to Dallas in the early 1920s as part of the migration pattern from rural areas to the city where many settled in the urban slum of West of Dallas. The Barrows spent their first months in West Dallas living under their wagon until they had enough money to buy a tent. So things were very rough for Clyde in his early years. Barrow was first arrested in late 1926 at the age of 17 after running when the police confronted him over a rental car that he failed to return on time. His second arrest was with his brother Buck soon after for possession of stolen turkeys. Don't know what he was stealing the turkeys for. <laughs> so yeah but barrow also had some legitimate jobs uh, during 1927 through to 1929 but he also did things like cracking safes robbing stores stealing cars <laughs> He, he he does have a job, but he, he also does the dodgy stuff on the side. Yeah, exactly. He basically had his, his cr- criminal side hustle sort of life going on as well. Don't so, we all? <laughs> exactly. I don't. I don't. That's a lot. I, don't, I really don't. <laughs> he met 19-year-old Parker through a mutual friend in January 1930, and they spent much time together in the following weeks. Their romance, however, was interrupted when Barrow was arrested and convicted of auto theft. Clyde was sent to Eastern Prison Farm in April 1930 at the age of 20. He escaped from the prison farm shortly after his incarceration using a weapon that Bonnie had actually smuggled into him. He was recaptured shortly after and sent back to prison. Barrow was repeatedly sexually assaulted while he was in prison and retaliated by attacking and killing his tormentor with a pipe, crushing his skull. And that was the first time he'd ever killed somebody. Another inmate who was already serving a life sentence claimed responsibility for Clyde so that he didn't get in trouble for it. In order to avoid hardly... I know, well, that's the thing, like, these things about, like, Bonnie and Clyde, I just didn't know. You know, like, these little extra stories that obviously build significance. Yeah, the tidbits, the input, like, but little bits that are important to, you know, like, the main thing. Like, basically, prison pretty much hardened him. In order to avoid hard labour in the fields, Barrow purposely had two of his toes... Oh, this is actually really disgusting. Barrow purposely had two of his toes chopped off by either himself or another inmate. I know, in late... In January of 1932. Because of this, he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. However, Barrow was set free six days after his intentional injury. So, I mean, really, he saved himself six days worth of work. (laughs) He didn't know, though. His mother had basically successfully petitioned for his release, but he just didn't know. So, basically, he cut off his toes for literally no reason. That's Um, like the end of the mist. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's awful. I know, it's so unfortunate. So he was paroled on February the 2nd, 1932 from Eastham as a hardened and bitter criminal. And I mean, I'd be bloody bitter if I'd just bloody cut my toes off. For nothing? 
for nothing and then got released, I'd be absolutely seething. Fancy not telling him. Oh my, my I just cut my toes off and now I'm out. What? <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, he was probably limping home and his mum's like, why have you got a limp? What's going on? <laughs> Where's your toes gone? <laughs> and he's just sat there like, for God's sake. His sister Marie said, something awful must have happened to him in prison because he wasn't the same person when he got out. And fellow- his toes cut off? Well, yeah, and also sexually assaulted. Fellow inmate Ralph Fult said that he watched Clyde change from a schoolboy to a rattlesnake, which I think that's that's quite an accurate description of him in like the coming years i think um it's really interesting that a fer- fellow inmate said that about him in his post eastern career barrow robbed grocery stores and gas stations at a rate far outpacing the 10 or so bank robberies attributed to him and the barrow gang his favorite weapon was an m1918 browning automatic rifle barrow's goal in life was not to gain fame or fortune from robbing banks but to seek revenge against the texas prison system for the abuses he suffered while serving time which i think makes sense because obviously he was sexually assaulted there and then obviously yeah literally like would rather cut his own toes off than do the hard labor that they were making them do yeah so he was probably very bitter about that i would imagine they they had had their first meeting already bonnie and clyde in 1930 at the home of barrow's friend clarence clay at 105 herbert street in the neighborhood of west dallas barrow was 20 years old and parker was 19 parker was out of work and staying with a female friend to assist her recovery from a broken arm barrow dropped by the girl's house while parker was in the kitchen there making hot chocolate and both were said to be completely smitten with each other immediately and a lot of historians believe that Parker joined Barrow because she'd fallen in love with him and remained a loyal companion throughout their many crimes all the way up until their violent deaths, which um, Bonnie and Clyde basically had viewed as pretty inevitable themselves. That She'd written poetry about it and things like that already. In 1932, this is where those sort of early robberies and murders come out. So after Barrow's release from prison in the February of 1932, he and Fultz began a series of robberies, primarily stores and gas stations, and their goal was basically to just collect enough money and firepower to launch a raid against Eastern Prison. So they were really, they did not like this prison that they had been held in. They really had it out for them, and this was the whole sort of motivation behind the original robberies. On April 19th, Parker and Fultz were captured in a failed hardware store burglary in which they had intended to steal firearms. Bonnie was released from jail in a few months after the grand jury failed to indict her Fultz was tried convicted and served time he never rejoined the gang after this which he's probably quite glad that he didn't now yeah, <laughs> on april 30th clyde was the getaway driver in a robbery in hillsborough during which the store owner jm butcher was shot and killed butcher's wife identified clyde from the police photographs as one of the shooters although he had stayed outside in the car bonnie wrote poetry in jail to pass the time she was reunited with Clyde within a few weeks of her release. On August the 5th, Clyde, Raymond Hamilton and Ross Dyer were drinking moonshine at a country dance in Stringtown, Oklahoma, when the sheriff and a dep- and the deputy sheriff approached them in the parking lot. Clyde and Hamilton opened fire, killing more and gravely wounding um the de- oh. the yeah, and gravely wounding the sheriff. Moore was the first law officer that Clyde and his gang had killed. 
They eventually murdered nine. On October the 11th, they allegedly killed Howard Hall at his store during a robbery in Texas, though some historians consider this to be a little bit unlikely and that it was another thing that was just sort of attributed to them because they were the most famous gang going around doing this at the time. W.D. Jones had been a friend of the ba- of Clyde's family since childhood and he but also joined in with Bonnie and Clyde's gang, which was referred to as the Barrow Gang, on Christmas Eve of 1932 at the age of 16. And the three left Dallas that night. The next day, Jones and, Jones and Clyde murdered Doyle Johnson, a young family man, while stealing his car in Temple. Barrow killed Tarrant County Deputy Malcolm Davis on January the 6th, 1933, when he, Bonnie and Jones wandered into a police trap set for another criminal. The gang had murdered five people since April, so it escalates quite quickly, and they're all very young, you know, if you think about it, they're all, like, early 20s, teens, and this is sort of, like, their life, their gang. If we fast forward to 1933, this is where we get two new people called Buck and Blanche, who joined the Barrow Gang. On March 22nd, 1933, Clyde's brother Buck was granted a full pardon and released from prison. He and his wife Blanche set up housekeeping with Bonnie, Clyde and Jones in a temporary hideout at 3347 Oakbridge Drive in Joplin, Missouri. According to family sources, Buck and Blanche were there to visit. They attempted to persuade Clyde to surrender himself to law enforcement. The group ran loud alcohol-fueled card games late into the night in the quiet neighbourhood. Blanche recalled that they bought a case of beer a day. The men came and went noisily at all hours and Clyde accidentally fired his gun in the apartment while he was cleaning it. Accidentally? Accidentally, accidentally. Basically, he was drunk and probably just fired it. Yeah. No neighbours went to the house, but one reported suspicions to the Joplin Police Department. So the police assembled a five-man force in two cars on April 13th to to confront what they suspected to be bootleggers living in the garage apartment. And I think it's important to just, like, quickly do a mini-history lesson. So in the 1930s, this is, like, right after that time of Prohibition. So Prohibition Mm -hmm. had been abolished at this time, but in some states, in southern states, it was still in force. So, like, bootleggers were basically, um, like, mules, weren't they? Like, people who would transport illegal things across borders and stuff like that especially alcohol so i think i referred to it before i said they were drinking moonshine so moonshine is basically like home-brewed alcohol because it was enforced as you know like against the law for so long Um, and that was sort of like to combat alcoholism and things like that that the government were trying to sort of crack down on and it just completely failed and just wasn't it it didn't work and so it basically caused a lot of criminals to to come about like al capone being the most famous probably like sort of bootlegger at the time with alcohol um and sort of gave way to a lot of these gangs so this sort of gangster culture especially in the early 1930s was very prevalent in america and we're also going through the great depression at this time as well so people in the south especially in the dust bowl sort of areas are like like they've got nothing you know, they, they've a lot of them don't have any money. They're very poor, um, and there's not a lot they can do because they can't afford to like go anywhere for entertainment. The police obviously assembled this five-man force around their garage apartment. Barrow Brothers and Jones opened fire, killing Detective Harry L. McGinn's outright and fatally wounding Constable J. W. Harriman. Bonnie opened fire 
as the others fled, Horton Highway Patrol Sergeant G.B. Kayler to duck behind a large oak tree. The .30 calibre bullets from the bo- from the gun struck the tree and forced the wood splinters into the sergeant's face. Bonnie got into the car with others and they pulled in Blanche from the street where she was pursuing her dog Snowball, who had run away during the commotion. The surviving officers later testified that they fired only 14 rounds in the conflict. One hit Jones in the side and one struck Clyde, but was deflected by his suit coat button. <laughs> I know, how how like lucky is that? Um, and one grazed book after ricocheting off a wall. This is going to, again, you'll see with all these sort of shootouts they have with the police, they get so lucky. Like, Bonnie and Clyde get shot quite a lot. and they it's manage like a to film. Su- yeah, it is like a film. And they manage to survive, like, all the time. It's crazy how, like, the gang, like, got away so many times with, with being shot at as much as they were. And then, like, little things like that, like, it, you know, like, bouncing off of his... Uh, off of his suit coat button like that's just that is insane look you couldn't make that up could you no exactly and like when you said it's like being off a film this is probably where the films have got it from because they're like well it actually happens so (laughs) (laughs) that's not that far-fetched no yeah but they were insanely lucky. The group escaped the police at Joplin, but left behind most of their possessions at the apartment, including books, parole papers, which were three weeks old, and a large arsenal of weapons, and a handwritten poem by Bonnie, and a camera with several rolls of undeveloped film. Police developed the film at the Joplin Globe and found many photos of Clyde, Parker and Jones posing and pointing weapons at one another. The Globe sent the poem and the photos over the newswire, including a photo of Bonnie clenching a cigar in her teeth and a pistol in her hand, and the gang of criminals became front-page news throughout America as the Barrow Gang. Now, these photos are iconic in a lot of ways, aren't they? Like, a lot of people will have seen them before um, without even knowing that they've seen them before, but that one of Bonnie posing with a cigar and a gun was really, really popular people like loved Bonnie and at the time obviously there wasn't a lot of entertainment and things like that going on and so people latched onto this in the news and followed this story so closely and they became obsessed with the gang they loved Bonnie they loved Clyde they were famous you know like for for baiting the police and and being on the run Uh, they were like criminal superstars at the time it's like Chicago isn't it like the media frenzy around like murdering yeah that's my reference point chicago yeah that's basically it yeah so clyde and bonnie were seen as like wild and young and obviously they were like these sort of lovers you know like romeo and juliet sort of thing they were young and they were really romanticized in the media and people just absolutely loved them um and were almost sort of supporting them over the over the police the group ranged from texas as far and as far north as minnesota for the next three months in May, they tried to rob, rob a bank in Indiana and robbed a bank in Minnesota. They kidnapped Dillard Darby and Sophia Stone in Louisiana in the course of stealing Darby's car. This was one of the events between 1933 and 1934 in which they kidnapped police officers or robbery victims. They usually would release their hostages far from home and sometimes with money to help them return home. You know, That's nice. So they're not all bad. They do kill people. They're kind. But they do take people hostage, but they'll give them money to get back Here's home. Here's a teller. Get yourself home. The stories of such encounters made the headlines, as did the more violent episodes. The Barrow Gang did not hesitate to shoot anyone who got in their way, whether it was a police officer or an innocent civilian. 
Other members of the Barrow gang who committed murder included Hamilton, Jones, Buck and Henry. Eventually, the cold-bloodedness of the murders opened the public's eyes to the reality of their crime and led to their ends because obviously... I think once the police realised that, like, a lot of the public were on their side and a lot of the public would actually, like, help them evade capture, you know, and things like that by, like, putting them up in a barn and things Stop like that. It. Yeah. And so once like they realised... Pretty much, yeah. So once they realised, like, oh, actually, we should probably stop romanticising them so much in the paper, they then would, you know, like, focus on the horrific deaths that, you know, like, Bonnie and Clyde and the Barrow Gang had done to try and get the public, you know, like, back on the police's side. Because these photos had entertained the public for quite some time, um, but the gang was desperate and discontented, um, and it was described by Blanche in her account written when she was imprisoned in the late 1930s. So with their new notoriety, their daily lives became more difficult as they tried to evade capture. Restaurants and motels became less secure because people would recognise them and want autographs and things like that. They resorted resorted to campfire cooking and bathing in cold streams. The unrelieved round-the-clock proximity of five people in one car gave rise to vicious bickering. Jones was the driver when he and Clyde stole a car belonging to Derby in in late April and he used that car to leave the others and stayed away until the 8th of June. So there was clearly some tension going on in the group. <laughs> they were not loving living in a car Five <laughs> people in a car, though, mate. Like, five people. Can you imagine? If, if you're in the backseat as well, three people, like, smushed together, like, of course, there's going to be bickering. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, if you just think about what it was like over lockdown, like, I've had my sister and my niece had to move in with me over lockdown, and honestly, there was some days where I was like, I just need to go on my daily walk. I've got to get out of here. I've got to get <laughs> yeah. out. I've got to get. <laughs> I was like that. <laughs> because. I'm going yeah, exactly. And the God, and this is just living in a car. Never mind, you know, like a whole house, you know. With, with and bathing in a stream. Bathing in a stream. That's the thing. And, and like having to do campfire cooking because they're getting recognised everywhere. So it definitely was not the sort of romanticised, you know, like romantic on the run sort of thing that I think people think it was. Um, because it wasn't it's just like, Bonnie and Clyde, it was the whole group. When people go backpacking and they come back and they're like, oh my God, it was the most amazing time of my life. I really found myself. And in actual fact, like, they were like, hating it. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> no one likes camping. Anyone who likes camp, they're lying. They just lie. I don't believe Liza it. Liza Manelli. I don't Liza believe it. Liza Manelli. Exactly. No one likes that. Clyde failed to see warning signs at a bridge under construction on June 10th while driving Jones and Bonnie near Wellington, Texas, and the car actually flipped into a ravine. Sources disagree on whether there was a gasoline fire or if Bonnie was doused with acid from the car's battery under the floorboards. But Bonnie sustained third degree burns to her right leg after this crash and they were so severe that the muscles contracted and caused the leg to draw up. And oh. Jones observed that he that she'd been burned so bad, none of them thought she was actually going to live. In some parts, he could see her bone. It was that <gasps> badly burnt, yeah. And so he... gave me a warning for this. I know, it was, it was really bad. Sorry. But yeah, it was a really, really bad burn. And again, this is another like little tidbit about Bonnie and Clyde. I had no idea. I didn't know she burnt most of her leg off. You know, so it, again, it's just all these, these little you know, parts I, of the story. I thought I knew the story right. I was like, <laughs> I know this. 
and then all of the things you're saying I did not know I know it's crazy so Bonnie could hardly walk so from that time on she either hopped on her good leg or had to be carried by Clyde they got help from a nearby farm family and then they kidnapped um, another sheriff George Corrie and the city marshal Paul Hardy leaving two of them handcuffed and barbed wired to a tree outside Oklahoma. And barbed wired. Yeah, they were they were brutal. So the three rendezvoused with with Buck and Blanche and hid in a tourist court near Fort Smith, Arkansas, which is where they nursed Bonnie's burns. Buck and Jones bungled a robbery and murdered town marshal Henry D. Humphrey, also in Arkansas. The criminals had to flee despite Bonnie's grave condition. And like they they all really thought like this is it, Bonnie's on her last legs, like she's gonna die. Oh she would. Yeah, so they are sort of panicking at this point. In July 1933, the gang checked into the Red Crown Tourist Court south of Platte City, Missouri. It consisted of two brick cabins joined by garages, and the gang rented both of them. Who's renting them stuff? I think it was just like a motel. To the south stood the Red Crown Tavern, a popular restaurant and Missouri Highway Patrolmen and the gang seemed to go out of their way to draw attention to themselves. Blanche registered the party as three guests but the owner Neil Hauser could see five people getting out the car. He noted that the driver backed into the garage gangster style for a quick getaway. <laughs> so apparently doing a bay park is gangster style so you can make a quick getaway. <laughs> Blanche paid for their cabins with coins rather than bills and did the same later when buying five dinners and five beers. That seems effort. That is a lot of effort, isn't it? Let's get your 20 peas out. But I think it's probably because coins can't be traced the same way notes can. But heavy to carry. Yeah, there's pros and cons, isn't there? The next day, Hauser noticed that his guests had taped newspapers over the windows of their cabin. Blanche again paid for five meals with coins. So apparently her outfit um, was attracting a lot of attention as well. It was not typical attire for women in the area and eyewitnesses remembered these 40 years later because she was showing a lot of leg so obviously women at the time you know how scandalous she was showing leg and uh, you know all this time later apparently people still remembered how scandalous this outfit was that she was wearing Houser told captain william baxter of the highway patrol a patron of his restaurant about the group that was staying there clyde and jones went into town purchased bandages crackers cheese and some sulfate to treat Parker's leg. However, the person that served them this contacted Sheriff Hulk Coffney, who put the cabins under surveillance. Coffney had been alerted by Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas law enforcement to watch for strangers seeking such supplies because they obviously knew, like, that she'd been wounded. If someone comes in here looking for some cheese and some crackers, you ring me. You ring me right now. I'd be getting arrested all the time if it was cheese and crackers. Oh my God, I know, I know. It is quite a weird um, combination though. I think it's probably the bandages and the sulfate that gave them away. The sheriff contacted Captain Baxter, who called for reinforcements from Kansas City, including an armoured car. Sheriff Coffney led a group of officers towards the cabins at 11pm, armed with Tommy machine guns. In the gunfight which ensued, a .45 calibre Thompson's proved no match for Clyde's .30 calibre BAR, which he had stolen on July the 7th from the National Guard Armoury in Oklahoma. The gang escaped. Those numbers mean nothing to me. I know. Nothing, absolutely nothing <laughs> to me. I'm just saying what they're called. The gang escaped when a bullet short-circuited the horn on the armoured car and the police officers mistook it as a ceasefire signal. They did not pursue the retreating vehicle. 
Which is odd. You'd think they would have... would have a better signal than that, wouldn't you? Yeah, you'd think they would have just done that. So the gang evaded the law once again, but Buck had sustained a bullet wound that blasted a large hole in his forehead skull bone and exposed his... Uh. In- oh, and exposed his injured brain. And, <gasps> yeah. And Blanche was nearly blinded by glass fragments in both of her eyes. Oh. So not so lucky this time for them too. Aragon camped at Dexville Park, an abandoned amusement park near Dexter, Iowa, in on July the 24th. Buck was sometimes semi-conscious and he even talked and ate, but his massive head wound and loss of blood was so severe that Clyde and Jones actually dug a grave for him while he was still alive. Local residents noticed their bloody bandages and officers determined that the campers were the Barrow Gang. Local police officers and approximately 100 spectators surrounded the group and the Barrows soon came under fire. Barrow, Parker and Jones escaped on foot. Buck was shot in the back. Oh, bless him. He's already got a bloody massive hole in his head. Buck was shot in the back and he and his wife were captured by the officers. Buck died of his head wound and pneumonia after surgery five days later at the King Daughters Hospital in Perry, Iowa. For the next six weeks, the remaining perpetrators ranged far afield from their usual area of operations, west to Colorado, north to Minnesota, southeast to Mississippi, yet they continued to commit armed robberies. You'd think they'd just lie low, just lie low for like a couple of, just a week (laughs) or so, just lie low. Just have a week off. Just have a week off. So they restocked their arsenal when Barrow and Jones robbed an armory at Platteville, Illinois on August 20th acquiring more handguns and obviously larger ones as well to sort of add to their arsenal. By early September, the gang risked a run to Dallas to see their family f- families for the first time in four months. Jones parted company with them, continuing to Houston where his mother had moved. He was arrested there without incident on November 16th and returned to Dallas. Through the autumn, Clyde committed several robberies with the small-time local accomplices, while his family and Bonnie's attended to her considerable medical needs. On the 22nd of November, they narrowly evaded arrest while trying to meet with family members near Texas. Dallas Sheriff Smoot Schmid, which what a name, Smooch Schmid. Smooch Schmid. <laughs> That's his name. And Deputy Bob Alcorn and another deputy, Ted Hinton, lay in wait nearby. As Clyde drove up, he sensed a trap and drove past his family's car, at which point Schmid and his officers stood up and opened fire with machine guns. Come on, Schmid. The family members in the crossfire were not hit, but a bullet did pass through the car, striking the legs of both Bonnie and Clyde. They escaped later that night. So they've been shot again, basically, in the legs. You'd give up at this point, wouldn't you? Like, you'd just be so sore. And the thing is, you'd be paranoid all the time, wouldn't you? Like, like, you'd constantly be waiting for the next thing to happen. And what's the worst thing they can do? Like, in prison, they can't take you to hard labour because you've got no toes. <laughs> exactly. And you'd probably be a hero in prison. You'd probably be, like, the top dog. Now, on November 28th, a Dallas grand jury delivered a murder indictment against Bonnie and Clyde for the killing in January of that year, nearly 10 months earlier, of the Tarrant County deputy, Malcolm Davis. It was Bonnie's first warrant for murder so now bonnie's also had that you know like looming over her so this takes us to 1934 on their final run so on january 16th 1934 clyde orchestrated the escape of hamilton methan and several others in the eastern breakout so that prison that he'd been at that he like this is why it all started basically because he was trying to 
organise a raid of it. This brazen raid generated negative publicity for Texas and Barrow seemed to have achieved overriding goal of that revenge against the Department um, of Corrections. Barrow gang member Joe Palmer shot Major Joe Croson during his escape. Croson died a few days later in the hospital. The attack attracted the full power of the Texas and federal government to manhunt for Bonnie and Clyde. As as Krausen struggled for life, prison chief Lee Simmons reportedly promised him that all persons involved in the in the breakout would be hunted down and killed. All of them eventually were, except for Methin, who preserved his life by setting up the ambush of Bonnie and Clyde. The Texas Department of Corrections contacted former Texas Ranger captain frank armor and persuaded him to hunt down the barrow gang he was retired but his commission had not expired he accepted the assignment as a texas highway patrol officer secondarily assigned to the prison system as a special investigator and given the specific task of hunting down the barrow gang hammer was tall barely and tacked him unimpressed by authority and, and driven by the need to do what he thought was right for 20 years he had been feared and admired throughout texas and was basically the embodiment of like a texas ranger basically so they thought if anyone can do this job and catch these criminals it's him like he was the sort of like last chance saloon if you will starting on february the 10th hammer became the constant shadow of bonnie and clyde living out of his car just a town or two behind them every time so he was literally like following them tracing their step three of hammer's four brothers were also texas rangers clyde and methan killed highway patrolman hd murphy and edward bryant wheeler on Easter Sunday of April 1st, 1934, at the intersection of Route 114. An eyewitness account said that Bonnie and Clyde had fired the fatal shots of these officers. Methin later admitted, though, that he had fired the first shot after assuming that Clyde wanted the officers killed. He also said that Parker approached the dying officers, intending to help them not to administer any sort of, you know, like... Revenge. ...final shots or anything like that. So Bonnie and Clyde actually weren't the ones... Um, who were really responsible for that at all it was Methan. during the spring season the grapevine killings were recounted and exaggerated in detail affecting the public perception all four dallas daily papers seized the story told by the eyewitnesses a farmer who claimed to have seen parker laugh at the way murphy's all four dallas daily papers seized on the story told by the eyewitnesses a farmer who claimed to have seen parker laugh at the way murphy's head bounced like a rubber ball on the ground as she shot him the stories claim that the police found a cigar butt with tiny teeth marks supposedly these are bonnie several days later murphy's fiance wore her intended wedding dress to his funeral and that attracted a lot of photos and newspaper coverage which really turned all the people who had sort of adored them completely against them and now people really wanted them to be found. Public hostility continued to increase when Clyde and Methan murdered 60-year-old constable Cal Campbell, a widower and father near Oklahoma. They kidnapped Commerce Police Chief Percy Board and crossed the state line to Kansas and let him go, giving him a clean shirt, a few dollars and a request from Bonnie to tell the world that she did not smoke cigars because she was really annoyed basically that people thought that she smoked cigars when she didn't because of the photo where she's just got it in her mouth. She wasn't smoking it, I just had it in my mouth. Oh yeah, exactly. I wasn't smoking, it was just in my mouth. <laughs> 
<laughs> Boyd identified both Bonnie and Clyde to the authorities, but he never learned Methan's name. The resultant arrest warrant for, Cam- for the Campbell murder specified Clyde Barrow, Bonnie Parker and John Doe. The resultant arrest warrant for the Campbell murder specified Clyde Barrow, Bonnie Parker and John Doe. For the first time, Bonnie was seen as a killer actually pulling the trigger, just like Clyde. Whatever the chance she'd had for any sort of leniency had been massively reduced. The Dallas Journal ran a cartoon on its editorial page showing an empty electric chair with a sign on it saying reserved and adding the words Clyde and Bonnie. Yeah, so that was massive and I bet you, I don't think they would have been happy about that. This is going on to the deaths of Bonnie and Clyde now and and how it happened. So Bonnie and Clyde were killed on May the 23rd of 1934 on a rural road in Louisiana. Hammer, who'd begun tracking the gang on February the 12th, led his posse. He had studied the gang's movements and found that they swung in a circle, skirting around the edges of the five western states, exploiting the state line rule which prevented officers from pursuing a fugitive into another jurisdiction so they were very clever the way they did it they were they would always scare on the edges of a state so that if they were getting pursued they'd just quickly go over the state line so that they could no longer be pursued surely like the yeah it definitely is silly that they do that i don't understand that because it's the same country the states in america really confuse me they send me i don't don't get it Um, if you're listening and you're from america please tell us yeah it's very strange so bad was consistent in his movements so hammer charted his path and predicted where he would go the gang's itinerary centered on family visits and they were due to see methan's family in louisiana in case they were separated clyde had designated methan's parents residence as a rendezvous point for them and Methan became separated from the rest of the gang in Shevenport. Hammer's posse was composed of six men Texas officers Hammer, Hinton, Alcorn and BM Gull and Louisiana officers Henderson Jordan and Prentice Morel Oakley. On May the 21st the four posse members from Texas were in Shevenport when they learnt that Clyde and Bonnie were planning a visit to Benville Parish that evening with Methan. The full posse set up an ambush along the Louisiana State Highway 154 south of Gibbsland towards sales. Hinton recounted that the group was in place by 9pm and waited through the whole of the next day with no sign of the perpetrators. Other accounts said that the officers said that the officers set up on the evening of May the 22nd. At approximately 9.15am on May the 23rd, the posse was still concealed in the bushes and almost ready to give up when they heard the Ford V8 that Clyde was driving approaching at high speed. In their official report, they stated they had persuaded Ivy Methan to position his truck along the shoulder of the road that morning. They hoped that Clyde would stop to speak with him putting his vehicle close to the posse's position in the bushes. When Clyde fell into the trap, the lawman opened fire and while the ve- while the vehicle was still moving. Oakley fired first, probably before any order to do so. Clyde was killed instantly by Oakley's headshot and Hinton reported hearing Bonnie scream. The officers fired about 130 rounds, emptying their weapons into the car. Many of Bonnie and Clyde's wounds would have been fatal, yet the two had survived several bullet wounds over the years in their confrontations with the law. The bullet-ridden car, originally owned by Ruth Warren of Topeka, Kansas, was later exhibited at carnivals and fairs and then sold as a collector's item. In 1988, the Prim Valley Resort and Casino in Las Vegas purchased it for a quarter of a million pounds. Barrow's enthusiasm for cars was evident in the letter he wrote in 
in the spring of 1934 addressed to Henry Ford himself while he said while I still have got breath in my lungs I will tell you what a dandy car you make I have drove Ford exclusively when I could get away with one for sustained speed and freedom for trouble the Ford has got e- has got every other car skinned and even if my business hasn't been strictly legal it don't hurt to tell you what a fine car you got in the V8 so he really loved Fords. Each of the six officers had a shotgun and an automatic rifle and pistols. They opened fire with the automatic rifles and they were emptied before the car got like close enough to them. Then they used the shotguns and there was smoke coming from the car at this point. It looked like it was on fire. After shooting the shotguns, they then emptied the pistols at the car which had passed and ran into a ditch about 50 yards down the road. It was almost turned over. We kept shooting at the car even after it had stopped as they weren't taking any chances. And that was a statement by Hinton who was there and obviously one of the officers who was shooting. Actual film footage taken by one of the deputies immediately after the ambush shows 112 bullet holes in the vehicle of which around one quarter struck the couple. So their bodies were like very badly damaged, damaged obviously by yeah already damaged and then horrifically damaged um by the the official coroner's report by parish coroner dr jl wade listed 17 entrance wounds on clyde's body and 26 on that of yeah. bonnie including several headshots on each and one that had snapped clyde's spinal column undertaker cf boots bailey had difficulty embalming the bodies because of the amount of bullet holes the deafened police officers inspected the vehicle and discovered an arsenal of weapons including stolen automatic rifles sawed off semi-automatic shotguns handguns the works the arsenal was ridiculous and all of the officers actually lost their hearing until later on that afternoon and um, so they were all deaf basically because of the amount of shots fired a crowd soon gathered at the spot where bonnie and clyde were killed the officers were left to guard the bodies but they lost control of the crowd one woman cut off locks of bonnie's hair and pieces from her dress which was subsequently sold as souvenirs hinton returned to find a man trying to cut off barrow's trigger finger and was sickened by what was occurring arriving at the scene a coroner reported nearly everyone had begun collecting souvenirs such as shell casing silvers of glass from the shattered car windows and bloody pieces of clothing from the garments of bonnie and clyde one eager man had opened his pocket knife and was reaching into the car to cut off Clyde's left ear, but was stopped. Hinton enlisted Hanmer's help controlling the circus-like, the circus-like atmosphere and they got people away from the car. The posse then towed the Ford away with the dead bodies still inside as there just wasn't time to do it properly because of the sort of mass circus around them, around the two. You think they would have had better like control of the crime scene and like... Maybe as soon as, like, it had happened, like, cordoned everything up. You know, like, it just seems like the police were just like, well, we got them, that's our job, let's just leave it be. Uh, Yeah, you would think that. So, just an interesting sort of tidbit as well, um... To, put, to add on to this um hd darby was an undertaker um at the funeral parlor where sophia stone was also a home demonstration agent and sophia stone was one of the people who'd been kidnapped um by the barrow gang in 1933 and parker well bonnie had reportedly laughed when she discovered um, that this person was an undertaker and she remarked that someday maybe he would be working on her 
And this person did end up, you know, helping with the embalming. That's a mad little tidbit. Which is crazy, isn't it? Because it's like, oh, and it's the fact that she wrote that, like, poem as well, sort of suggesting that this was going to happen, it, you know, like, they'd die. It's so, it. like, it's so cinematic, this whole thing, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It really is, like, a cinematic story, yeah. So, Bonnie and Clyde wish to be buried side by side, but Bonnie's family would not allow it. Her mother wanted to grant her final wish to be brought home, but the mobs surrounding the Parker house made that impossible. More than 20,000 people attended Parker's funeral and her family had difficulty reaching her gravesite. Bonnie's services were held on May the 26th. Dr. Alan Campbell recalled that flowers came from everywhere, including cards, allegedly from um, big sort of groups of mafia, yeah, mob, things like that. People gathered outside both of the Dallas funeral homes because... Um, obviously they weren't kept in the same one. Clyde's private funeral was held at sunset on May the 25th. He was buried in Western Heights Cemetery in Dallas next to his brother Marvin. The Barra brothers share a single granite marker with their names on it and theirs is engraved with the saying gone but not forgotten. The bullet riddled Ford and the shirt Clyde was wearing have been in the casino of Whiskey Pete's in Prim Nevada since 2011. Previously they were on display at another casino. The American National insurance company of Galveston, Texas paid the insurance policies in full on Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, since then, the policy of payouts has been changed to exclude payouts in cases of death caused by criminal act um, of the insured. Bonnie's niece and the last surviving relative of um, Bonnie is campaigning to have her aunt reburied next to Clyde. So that's still going on to this day because they still aren't buried next to each other. And so there you have it, the case of Don't Bonnie you know, and Clyde. I feel like I've been educated. I feel like I've learned a lot. I thought I knew the story, but not all that. And you gave us a lot of little, like, tidbits there. Yeah, there's lots of interesting stuff. And as always, I haven't been able to include absolutely everything. There is tons on this case. There's loads and loads of, like, little extra tidbits and things like that. And what other members went on to do and stuff. But obviously, we just can't fit it all into an episode. Otherwise, it'd be a very, very, very long episode. Um, but in a nutshell, that is the story of, of Bonnie and Clyde. And they're possible. Out, you know, on times like this, when, when there's so much to do in an episode, we often come back to them on our Patreon and do a morbid musings on it and talk about stuff that we didn't get a chance to do in the episode. Yes. So just FYI, just that's there if you want to go and do that. Yes, that would be amazing. Um, but thank you very much for listening. I'm loving this Crimes of Passion season. I love it. But it definitely is not the love story that, you know, like everyone thinks it is. It was very, it was uh, very yeah, grim. It, like just literally what happened to their bodies in terms of like how hurt they got and how many times they got shot. Just yeah. Demonetizes it, and like those pictures and things like that were before they were even on the run. And I feel like people always think like those pictures were like whilst it was all going on and things like that, but that was found beforehand. You know, like so. And, and we just want to put it on the record yeah. now that Bonnie does not smoke cigars. <laughs> Bonnie does not smoke cigars. She has never smoked a good cigar. She will never ever smoke a cigar. <laughs> Do you know what? If she, what's our next episode about, Danny? Our next episode is the case of Anna Capina. So again, that is another sort of crime of passion so we will see you next week for that case but in the meantime stay morbid stay curious this has been an audio bear production our show tune is half mystery by kevin mcleod <laughs>